You know, as, uh, as Ryan just mentioned, even while he was praying, uh, what we get to do now is, is a privilege to gather together, to open up the Word of God, to have it for us, available to us in our own language. Um, we, sobering reality to start out with today, we have this privilege because people in history have literally died uh, to get the Bible uh, to us. Uh, I was reading this week about uh, in the 1400s when the Roman Catholic Church had pushed Parliament to pass a law that the translating of the text of Scripture into English or any other language by someone who was unauthorized, that person would be considered a heretic and it was punishable by burning at the stake. I read this week too about William Tyndale who in the early 1500s, knowing that this was on the books, decided it was necessary for the people of God to have the access to the Word of God. And so knowing what it might cost him, he gave his life to do this work anyway. Seeing his friends and business par- partners tortured and killed, he eventually Eventually, at the age of 42, never having been married, and because of the way he was brutally executed, never even was buried. William Tyndale and many others have literally given their lives in order that we might have the Word of God. They gave their lives for this purpose, knowing that in the Word of God we are given the clarity on these incredibly important questions like who is Jesus and what did he come to do? We're going to find out today an answer to those questions. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And for those of us who, like William Tyndale in the past and so many others, who choose to follow him, what might we expect as those who follow him. We're going to see that as we continue our series in Luke chapter 9. Today we begin in verse 18 and we're going to go down through verse 27. If you're able to, would you stand as we read the very word of God? Let's pray. Oh God, soften our hearts, sober our minds. We live in a world running fast towards all kinds of things, seemingly running fast away from you in a number of ways, and we acknowledge that we have hearts that are easily drawn away, minds that are easily distracted, prone to wandering. So I pray that you, for your name's sake, would by your Holy Spirit work now in us as we hear your word read and then preached, as I preach it, God, help us. Help us to believe it and help us to live like we believe it. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 18, God's word says this, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Amen. You can be seated. Well, you'll see three big questions that are the three points of the sermon today inside your sermon outline there inside your bulletin. First one is this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The setting is given to us in verse 18. In verse 18, we're told that finally they had gotten some time alone. Remember at the beginning of the passage last week, Jesus and his disciples, after a time of ministry, sought to withdraw to a place to have some time alone, and a crowd of 5,000 plus showed up. Now they're alone, and Jesus is praying And he has an opportunity to address his disciples, and he asks them a very important question. He asks them, who do the crowds say that I am? We've seen crowds up to this point, big crowds, come and hear what Jesus has to say. They've noticed that he teaches with authority. They've seen him perform miracles, some of their lives transformed in a moment by what Jesus came and did. But now Jesus is asking his disciples the question, not just what are they seeing me do and are they attracted to me, but who do the crowd say that I am? And the disciples have their ear to the ground and they've heard popular opinion. And popular opinion kind of boils down to three main things. Some people say this must be John the Baptist. Some people say this must be Elijah the prophet. And other people say this is one of the other Old Testament prophets that's now come back to life in some way. That's the categories that most of the population has in their mind that they're trying to fit Jesus into. He's a prophet of some sort, whether it be John the Baptist, who was beheaded, we found out earlier in this chapter, Elijah the prophet, who was taken up in a whirlwind up into heaven, we read about in the Old Testament, or one of the other Old Testament prophets. That's kind of the conclusion that the general public, these people coming to hear Jesus teach, they're trying to figure out who he is, and that's the conclusions they've come to. But then Jesus is going to give to his disciples a much more personal question. And he doesn't just want to know what's the popular opinion out there. Jesus, to his disciples, asks this question, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter is going to answer for everybody else. Some of you come from a family where you have somebody in your family who's the one who always answers for everybody else, right? Peter's that guy among the disciples who answers for everybody else, and in this case, he gets the right answer. Who do you say that I am, Jesus says, and notice Peter's answer there. We started in verse 18, we're now in verse 20. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Christ. Christ or Messiah. This long-awaited one 
who Israel had been waiting for, the one who would come to be the king to rule and to reign. This is who Jesus is, and Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, actually gets that right. But it's going to become clear as we continue to go through the gospel according to Luke. It's not that Peter and the disciples understand everything already. They're they're not there yet. There's still a lot more for them to learn, even for them to learn what does it mean that he is the Christ or the Messiah. Now, the fact, though, that they got it right, the crowds are wrong. Jesus is not John the Baptist. He's not Elijah. He's not an Old Testament prophet risen from the dead. He is, in fact, the Christ. Peter is right. You might expect that Jesus would then say to the disciples, well, listen, get out there. You got the right answer. Go set everybody straight. The, the, the public is wrong about who I am. You're right. You go tell them the truth about who I am. But you heard me read the passage, and that's not what happens. Let's go ahead and look at verse 21. What actually happens Verse 21 says, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Tell this to no one. What? Well, why? Like, this is who he is. They're right. He is the Christ. Why would Jesus want this to be told at this time to no one? And the key to answering that question is in the question itself when I said at this time. There's going to be a time when they need to know this, but at the time, here's what's happening. Israel's expectation, and I would say even the disciples' expectation, of who the Messiah was and what he came to do were mistaken in some ways. Or at least the timing was off. The popular understanding of the Messiah, the Christ, is that he would be a powerful king who would rescue them from their current political situation. That the Messiah, the Christ, was one who would come to Israel and from Israel, rising up among Israel, and rescue Israel from their current political situation. He would come to lead a revolution and rule and reign as the Messiah, as the Christ. And Jesus would indeed do that one day. But he tells them not to tell people that he's the Christ right now because he's got to let them know, here's what I came to do first. And that's what we see in verse 22. When Jesus has to explain what it is he came to do, here's what he says. Verse 22, saying, the Son of Man, that's Jesus' designation for himself. He takes it from the book of Daniel. The Son of Man must, listen to this, suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. There's four verbs there. Suffer, rejected, killed, and raised. And you've probably sometime at some point in your life heard something from someone that was so unexpected, so shocking, that you hear the beginning of what they say, and as your brain's trying to process what they just said, you might not even hear or understand what they said at the end. 
And so Jesus did say that he would be raised from the dead. Evidence shows later on they're not going to totally understand what that meant because I think their minds are so, so confused by what Jesus just said because they had the expectations of what the Messiah would come to do. And now Jesus just said, I'm going to suffer and be rejected. Now they might expect that the occupying Roman government might reject their Messiah, their king. But Jesus said he's going to be rejected by who? Do you see it there? Jesus is going to be rejected by the Jewish leaders, by the leaders of Israel itself. They're going to be the ones who stand up against and reject Jesus. And he will be killed. And so the disciples surely are just just totally confused by what Jesus is saying here. Suffer? Rejected? Killed? This is what Jesus came to do? That's what Jesus is saying here. Let's break for application for a second before we turn the corner here. And let me just say this. Church, we must know who Jesus is and what he came to do. We must know who Jesus is and what he came to do. If you asked the kind of a popular poll in our day, who do the crowd say that Jesus is, I think we'd find a lot of people are quite mistaken in this world that we live in about who Jesus is. Popular opinions about Jesus in his day were wrong. They thought he was just a prophet. Oh, he was a prophet, but he was so much more than a prophet. In our day... People also are confused about the identity of Jesus. Many treat Jesus as though he's some sort of genie that you call on when life gets really uncomfortable. And hopefully if you say the right words in the right way with the right positive kind of attitude and the right amount of faith, that that this genie Jesus will, will come and give you. He'll make your body well again immediately and kind of just give you whatever would make you comfortable in this world right now. That's a popular opinion about who Jesus is. But Jesus is so much more than a miracle worker and healer who we can call on for comfort. In our day, people see Jesus, some do, as like this revolutionary, radical rabbi who models for us a radical new way of living. And that's the primary purpose of Jesus coming is just to show people a radical new way of living. There's so many in our liberal churches today that really essentially teach this. Jesus is a model who models a certain way of living and we are to live in Jesus' way. And yes, Jesus is a revolutionary and he does come in part to model a way to live, but Jesus is so much more than that. That's what we're getting at here as Jesus says he came to suffer and to be rejected and to be killed. This is at the heart of what Jesus came to do. We, church, must know who Jesus really is. That's why it's important that that we just even today, a a little bit ago, together recited Article 4 of our Statement of Faith. This is part of what draws us together as a church. We believe these things to be true about Jesus. We said we believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. These are particular things that we as a church say we believe about who Jesus is because this is what the scriptures teach. 
the summary of that. And church, we not only need to know who Jesus is, but we need to know what Jesus came to do. We continued reciting our statement of faith, article number four, by saying this, he lived a sinless life. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He arose bodily from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. And that's what we see really in verse 21. Not just who is Jesus, but what did Jesus come to do? And at the heart of what Jesus came to do is to die and to be raised. And he shares that with the disciples here in verse 22. Just like they needed to know who Jesus was and what he came to do, it's very much the same in our day. The people are confused about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And we as followers of Jesus must be people who know who Jesus is and what he came to do and proclaim that to people. Let's continue on though, turning the corner. Yes, Jesus came to rule and to reign, but first he's going to suffer and be rejected and be killed by hanging on a cross. And so maybe we're not as surprised when we get to verse 23 when Jesus tells his disciples, if you're going to follow me, here's what it's going to look like. Now if you think about the disciples' experience so far, certainly there's been some opposition, but so far generally what we've seen in the Gospel of Luke is that when Jesus goes places, he attracts a crowd. His teaching is with authority. right? And and miracles are being done, and so people keep coming. Right? So, so this, is, this is really happening, and we saw at the beginning of this chapter that Jesus empowers and sends out the apostles, the 12 disciples, to go and do this kind of stuff. So what they've seen so far is following Jesus kind of looks like popularity and power. They just had a crowd of 5,000 plus come to hear Jesus teach, and then they got to see Jesus' power on display as they fed these crowds from five loaves and two fish, right? So, so, So far, their experience of following Jesus has been popularity and power in many ways, but now Jesus is going to level with them. Here's what it looks like to follow me. This is sobering. This message today, just so you know, like I I didn't warn you ahead of time, you're here already, you're stuck. It's not like a pick-me-up. This message is sobering because Jesus' message to his disciples would have felt very sobering. And so the message to the disciples that Jesus has begins in verse 23. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus is going to experience suffering, rejection, and death. And so he tells his disciples, if you're going to follow me, you can expect the same. Not living for yourselves, but dying to yourself, denying yourself. Expecting to take up your cross daily. The cross, an instrument of execution and death. He's calling them to die daily. He's calling them not to live for the approval of others, but to be willingly rejected by others. By being willing to lose everything in the here and now, knowing that they will be saved and accepted by him in the end. Notice what it said in verse 24. Verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Skip ahead to verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, 
Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. They have a choice. Their choice is death or life, and what Jesus gives them is a call to die now but live later, to lose their lives now that they might be saved in the end, to experience the rejection and shame of people right now that he might, they might, not, be, he might not be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory. And then in verse 25, I skipped over that one, let's go back to it, verse 25. For what does it profit a man, Jesus says, if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? True life, eternal life, is found in Christ alone. So disciples of Jesus are not meant to spend their entire lives seeking the things that the rest of the world is seeking. Right? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet loses or forfeits himself? If you play the board game of life, the winner at the end of the board game of life is the one who has the most money, but that's not the truth in real life. That's not what Jesus is saying. We don't spend our lives trying to get the most that we can now. Earlier we sang right out of Philippians chapter 3, whatever gain we count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. That's what we just sang together. There's one more verse here, the, the last verse, and this one can be confusing. So I want to spend some time just explaining this before we look at the application of, of these last verses together. Verse 27, let me just read it again, says this, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What, what does that mean? There's some standing here. Jesus, remember, he's in the context. He's with his 12 disciples. What does he mean that there are some standing there that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God? We've already talked. Now, here's what you could do. You could do a long Bible study on this. A good study Bible would give you uh, maybe some different options. Here's some different ways that we can understand a hard-to-understand verse. Here's some other passages we could go look at. For the sake of this message, I just want to just kind of summarize what I think the, the, the teaching of this verse is for us. What we know is this. The kingdom of God breaks into the world in the person of Jesus who comes to rule and to reign. But we know that this kingdom won't be consummated until the return of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus tells them that some standing around him will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, we can look at history and say, well, he couldn't have been referring to the second coming, right? Because these ones will die before Jesus comes again because we're still waiting for the second coming. I think he was referring to actually a, a number of things, and one of them most clearly and most nearly would be that he's referring to a way in which the kingdom uh, will be previewed in what we'll look at next week. It actually happens in real time eight days later. Okay, It's called the transfiguration. We'll look at that next week. And I think that's a, a preview of the kingdom of God that is given. The disciples, not all of them, but some of them, will have an opportunity to see Jesus in his glory. 
And I think that's a preview of the kingdom. So Jesus, I think, in part is referring to that. Some people would say that's all he's referring to. I think he's referring to also more than that. I think he's referring also to things that most of the disciples will be able to witness. That is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The ascension of Jesus into heaven, that he might be seated at the right hand of God. Right? And that, that... that they would experience also the coming of the Holy Spirit. I think all of these things, these kind of previews and, and, and very important pieces of the kingdom of God that most of them standing there will be able to live through. But let's not lose sight. So, so that's verse 27. Maybe you have a different understanding or interpretation. Faithful Bible scholars have kind of landed in different places on what exactly Jesus means by that. But let's not lose sight of the sobering reality of this passage. And that is this, that Jesus is the Christ. And as the Christ, he has come to suffer and be rejected and be killed and to be raised from the dead. And all who follow him can expect the same. Death before life. Followers of Jesus are not those who indulge themselves, but those who deny themselves, who die daily, who lose their lives, who die in order to live. So, let's end with some application for us. Fellow followers of Jesus, here's what Jesus says to those who follow him. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Now, our mind, when we hear that from Jesus, might go immediately to people like William Tyndale, who literally gave their lives for the sake of the gospel. I don't know if any of us will have an opportunity to literally die for translating a Bible or preaching the gospel. We'd like to think that if we had to face that choice, we would, we would willingly die. But notice what Jesus says in verse 23. He says, deny himself and take up his cross daily. Remember, the cross was an instrument of execution. You didn't get crucified multiple times. Only one time, yet here Jesus says, take up his cross daily. You can't literally die every day, but there are ways in which we can choose to deny ourselves every day. In many ways, we can die little deaths every single day of our life. When I do premarital counseling, and I've done that with some of you that are here, we go through Ephesians 5 where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I'll usually ask the husband to be a question like, well, would you, would you die for your wife? Like if, if it came down to it, would you take a bullet for your wife? And of course, the husband say, well, of course I would. And I'll usually say something like, well, good for you. That's the right answer. You should. You'll probably never have an opportunity to do it though. But you know what you might have an opportunity to do? come home after a long day of work and see your favorite chair calling your name. And you can think of all of the things that you have done in that day and the reasons that you're tired and probably everybody else in the house, including your wife, should probably serve you. You're going to be very tempted to go sit in that chair. And you're also going to notice that there's a pile of dirty dishes. And you'll have an opportunity to either go sit in your chair or to go do the dishes. I don't doubt, husband-to-be, that you would take a bullet for your wife, but will you not sit in your chair and instead go and do the dishes? 
That's a, that's a, a little denying yourself rather than indulging yourself, denying yourself each day. We're all called to do this in a number of different ways, to give up something that's valuable to us. Maybe it's giving up our time in order to serve somebody else. Maybe it's just giving grace to somebody who we think doesn't really deserve it. Maybe it's giving our money, whatever it might be. I've shared this story before. I just thought of it this morning, and it's like, I got to it's been a few years probably since I've shared this story, but I love this story because I love it when, when unexpected people. A lot of people think like, oh man, especially like teenagers are just selfish, right? Well, they are. You get, teenagers admit it, you are sometimes, just like the rest of us, selfish. But one of, one of the highlights of my time in youth ministry was this one time when we were at a middle school retreat. And, and usually highlight and middle school retreat don't go together, right? But it was a highlight for me because here's what happened. What happened was we all had, we were in this like one big cabin, but there were different rooms in the cabin. And so I was staying with all kids from my church and there were kids from another church who were being punks. Uh, and and they, they had come and they were doing something to a kid in our youth group. When I wasn't around, I didn't see what was happening. Uh, but it ended up somehow, I don't remember everything that happened, but, but they got this kid super soaking wet while he was in his bed. So his sleeping bag is soaked. He's soaked. He's kind of humiliated. He laughed for the moment. But by the time I get back, I see this wet sleeping bag, and I'm told that this kid is in the bathroom uh, crying. And so like I, and here's who did it. So I first went to, I can't remember which I did first, but I, I went to try to comfort the kid, and I went to go address the leader of the other kids who had done this. And by the time I did those things and I came back to our room, I found that Andrew Larson, who had been watching all of this happen, a 7th or 8th grade boy at the time, who was laying in his dry sleeping bag, had gotten out of his dry sleeping bag and got in the other kid's wet sleeping bag so that by the time that kid came back from the bathroom, he had a dry sleeping bag to sleep in. That's the kind of thing that I think Jesus is talking about. These little things that are bigger than we think, of just denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily, and following him. Andrew Larson was looking like a follower of Jesus on that day when he got in a wet sleeping bag and let somebody else take his dry sleeping bag. That, that's just one little example. You probably won't have that opportunity, but you will have opportunities, I promise you, this afternoon and this evening and tomorrow in your home, in your workplace, in our community, where we can be people who look at others and say, for the sake of Jesus, I want to show people what Jesus' love looks like, and I will face suffering and rejection and whatever else in order to love the people around me, which is what Christ came to do. So fellow followers of Jesus, let's not waste our lives seeking the approval of others. Let's not waste our lives seeking our own comfort. Let's not waste our lives seeking worldly gain and losing ourselves in the process. But let's be people who are unashamed. Who are unashamed to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We might not be brutally executed like William Tyndale was, but we may be rejected. That's just the reality. And you don't need to have you know, a microphone strapped to your ear in order to preach the gospel. 
there's all sorts of ways in which you, in the relationships that God has already given you, he also gives open doors that we often kind of are ashamed to maybe walk through. But let's walk through those doors and pray, preach the gospel of Christ to those around us, knowing there might be a cost, willing to die all kinds of little deaths daily, denying ourselves for the good of others and the sake of the gospel. Realizing we're not here in order to live our best life now, but being willing to suffer and be rejected in order that we might live forever. How do we do this? Because this is hard. This is a, the, the disciples would have a hard time doing this. We have a hard time doing this. It's way easier to indulge yourself than to deny yourself. It's way easier to, to, to live for the acceptance of others than to be willingly rejected by others. That's just, so how do we do it? Let's just finish with this. I think we do it by looking ahead to the second coming when Jesus' kingdom is finally established forever. Reminding ourselves that our citizenship is not in this world, but it's ultimately in heaven. We do it by remembering that after Jesus suffered and was rejected and ultimately died, he rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, who is now sovereignly seated on the throne. And, and we, we, we continue on in following Jesus by remembering this reality that he is coming again. We do it by beholding Jesus. Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, we do it by believing what we're about to sing here in a moment. The last verse of the song that we're going to close with says this, When the age of death is done, we'll see your face bright as the sun. We'll bow before the King of kings. Oh God, forever we will sing. That's how we live in this world, denying ourselves, dying to ourselves daily in order that we might look forward to that day. And we endure these days by looking ahead to that day, beholding the Lamb who died for us, who rose from the dead, who is on the throne, and who is coming again for us. Let's get our eyes fixed on Him together. Let's pray. Father, we, we admit that there's just a part of us that really, really, really likes to be comfortable we really want to indulge ourselves, not deny ourselves. We like to be accepted by others, not rejected. And so we just admit that's what part of us wants. But for those of us who trust in Jesus, that we know that he is the Christ, we who have received the free gift of salvation by faith, we, we know that we are saved because he lived the perfect life that we failed to live. And that he suffered for us, that he faced rejection for us, that he bore your wrath for us, that he died for us. So, would you help us to follow him to death? Help us to deny ourselves and die daily. Help us to behold him, keeping our eyes on him until he comes again in glory. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and stand.